Each week as a church we have teaching from the Bible and uh, as a church we've been in a teaching series about prayer as Polly mentioned. And if you've got a Bible and you want to turn, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses in a moment's time and then we're going to be exploring prayer together. Now when a a doctoral student at Princeton University once asked, um, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research, Albert Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Well, we're in a month of prayer, and today I'm speaking about two aspects, prayer and mission, and how they fit together, prayer and mission. Now, I've been in and led dozens of prayer meetings where we've, we've prayed for people who don't know Jesus. Um, we've been out this week walking the streets of Peacehaven, maybe, New Haven, certainly, and Seaford out um, praying for the towns that we live in, that God would help people who don't know Jesus come to know him. We've been asking God to bless it. But then I've also been in settings where people have opted to pray for God to reach people instead of actually ever going to talk to people. Um, I've been in church, churches before where we have prayed week in, week out for something called Alpha, which is a uh, an introductory course to the Christian faith. I've been in settings where people have prayed week in, week out for Alpha, all the while knowing that almost no one in the room is going to actually bother to invite anyone to Alpha. And I've even been to seminars where speakers have said churches shouldn't have prayer meetings because they should just get on with doing the stuff. We spend too much time praying and not enough time doing the stuff. So which is it? What are we to do? What's the relationship between prayer and mission? That's part of what we're exploring together this morning. Um, just a bit of background, I suppose. Actually, no, I'll tell you what, let's read from the Bible first. Let's do that. Uh, so Mark chapter 1 um, and verse 35, we're going to read to verse 39. This is a gospel about the life of Jesus. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. He said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, please come and speak to us now. We are those who sit under your word. We're students of your word. I ask that you'd help us with some of the questions that we bring to this text, questions that we bring to prayer, and teach us and inspire us, we pray. Amen. Now there's, prayer comes first, that's what we see. Uh, It came first for Jesus, but it also must come first for us, and it does, in fact, come for us. There's a lot in the world that I, I don't understand, and that I really want to understand, especially when it comes to prayer and the Christian life. I find that the simplistic answers of my atheist, atheist friends and my religious fundamentalist friends don't match my experience very well. And so let's consider prayer's role in human life to begin with. First of all, uh, let's start with what we know about prayer. Uh, what we know is that in some form, prayer is common to every person. Polls tell us that 9 out of 10 people admit to praying regularly and 3 out of 4 people admit to praying every day. A psychiatrist, a man named Gerald May, said, After 20 years of listening to the yearnings of people's hearts, I'm convinced that human beings have an inborn desire for God. 
Whether we're consciously religious or not, this desire is our deepest longing and our most precious treasure. And from the time that we're very young, we learn that there is a lot in the world that is outside of our control and a lot that will likely do us harm if we don't control it. And so we pray. As infants, we pray to our parents. We plead with them to tame the unknown forces around us. And we pray that they would bestow blessings on us, the blessings that we desire, the chocolate bars and biscuits and protection that we so need. We are helpless as infants, and so we pray. As adults, we're still just as helpless, but we convince ourselves that we're in control. So we might pray less. We get used to the fact that every night when we go to sleep, we wake up again, and so uh, several hours later, and so we think that life is within our control, but it isn't. On the same day that my dad died, around eight years ago, um, the strangest thing happened. Three doors down from us, uh, in a neighbor's house that we'd grown up with, um, his kids were the same age as me, um, so I was friends with them throughout my, my years. But on the same day that my dad died, he also died of a heart attack. Um, we'd had five years to prepare for my dad's death. They'd had almost no time at all to prepare the illusion of control was dramatically shattered for them that day. We are not in control. I mean, there is nothing to say that I won't have a heart attack before I finish this sentence. Phew. <laughs> the more helpless you are, uh, the more you pray, or the more, uh, the more aware of your helplessness you are, the more you pray, and by contrast, the less aware you are of your helplessness, the less you pray, the healthier, the stronger, the richer you are maybe the less you pray. Um, for most people, particularly those who aren't religious, prayer often feels like or it's akin to firing arrows into the dark, never really sure if they're hitting anything, never really sure if there's anything out there to hit at all. But because of Jesus, Christians can have a grasp on ultimate reality more than anybody else on the planet can, if we're willing to listen and engage with it. It was the evangelist D.L. Moody who said, the Christian sees more on their knees than the philosopher does on their tiptoes. It's true, because we know what ultimate reality is. That there is a God, and he is a father, and he has come to earth, and he has sent a rescuer to us. And that gives us a head start. Not doesn't make us arrogant, because it's a received, it's a gift. But it gives us a head start if we're willing to listen and engage. Now, as Christians, we can approach the chaos and the confusion of life with a confidence, then, that is born out of this fact. The fact that we know the one who's able to tame the chaos and heal it and provide great things from it. Prayer for Christians is one of the greatest privileges we have. We have the promise that God will hear us and act in our interest the Apostle Peter, writing to a group of Christians, he said to them, uh, cast your cares and anxieties onto God because he cares for you. Not because that's your duty, it's what religious people do, but because he cares for you. Now the Christian life is a relationship, and like any relationship, it involves listening and speaking. And to the extent that you do both, your relationship is healthy, your relationship grows. Now, we listen to God through his word, through his indwelling spirit prompting us with intuitions and ideas. And we talk to God through prayer. We listen and we talk. We listen and we talk. 
And at times, prayer feels like a familiar conversation with friends sat around a dinner table. And other times, prayer feels like a fight and a struggle as we wrestle with God and the world in prayer. At times, we try and bend reality to our liking through prayer. At other times, we try to bend our will to God's through prayer. Or perhaps we fight with God and we demand that God tell us what he's doing. Sometimes prayer feels like a calling for backup and for emergency help. At other times in prayer, we deal a blow to the enemy and to his schemes. When we pray, we come under the surgeon's knife. We allow God to change us. When we pray, we sit under God's spotlight and we become aware that before God, we are exposed and vulnerable There's nowhere to hide. In prayer, it's just you and God and silence. And it's terrifying. And maybe that's why it's so hard for us to do. Maybe that's why we resist it so much and we find so many other things to do instead. But prayer is a partnership. It's us on the road with God through life, traveling together from appointment to appointment and meeting to meeting, from crisis to crisis, asking for wisdom, asking for insight, asking for power. God, help me as I go here. God, bless me as I do this. God, come to the rescue here. God, what on earth are you doing? God, are you even there? When we pray, we become a voice for the voiceless. We intercede before God on their behalf. Prayer then is a form of advocacy. It's a fighting for one another's freedom from prison or from despair. To pray as a Christian is to pray as one who trusts God. Trusts God enough to eventually say, your will be done. That's the heartbeat of Christian prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, say this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. For some reason we all go old English when we start praying that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, your will be done. That, at its root, is the heart, perhaps, of what it means to pray as a Christian to a father, saying eventually, your will be done. And that isn't a fatalistic and defeatist prayer or a surrender. It's a statement of trust. It's a statement that we recognize the trustworthiness of God. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul wrote, For we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purposes. Sometimes it takes generations, a whole number of lifetimes to work that good out. But we pray as those who can trust. Prayer comes first. Now let's consider prayer, the role of prayer in Jesus' life. Getting into the Bible passage, uh, what stands out to me is Peter's statement. He runs up to Jesus, says, everyone is looking for you. And that was always something that was true of Jesus. At his birth... It was the shepherds, it was the, the wise men, the magi, and then it was Herod. Uh, then John the Baptist, baptizing people in the River Jordan, looking in the crowds to see if he could spot the Messiah because he was told he would. Then after that in the desert, the devil comes looking for him. Then after that, the angels come looking to minister to him. Then in Mark's gospel, it's the sick and the oppressed by those who are oppressed by demons that come looking for him. Elsewhere, it's his mother and his brothers who come looking for him. Everyone is looking for Jesus, but Jesus is looking for his father. Jesus may have lived before the age of smartphones and emails, but he still knew the demands and the pressures of the people around him. 
he had expectations put on him by others that he wasn't able or willing to meet. Pressures that he should be in a certain place at a certain time and do a certain thing. Notice then that it was only after prayer that Jesus was then perhaps able to arrange his priorities. And he was able to walk away from the demands of some and walk towards the demands of others. Peter comes up to him and says, everyone's looking for you. Imagine him out of breath, uh, panicking, finally relieved that he's found him, perhaps freaking out because there's a crowd that's growing and they're becoming increasingly irate because where is he? Peter eventually runs up and as he often likes to do because Peter thinks he knows what Jesus ought to be doing on any given day. None of us are like that. We're willing to surrender. But Peter seems to think he can dictate to Jesus what he should be doing. He says, Jesus, finally I found you. Phew, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, uh-huh. We're going this way. (laughs) What are we going to do with them? Because prayer played such a prominent part in Jesus' life, uh, just listen to how much prayer played a part in the life of the early church. So Luke records for us the life of the first church, the early Christians in the book of Acts, and you you flick through it in Acts chapter 1. It says, All those were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Acts 6. These they set before the apostles and prayed. And they laid their hands on them and sent them out. Acts chapter 9. Peter kneels down and prays. And turning to the girl's dead body, he says, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and sat up and saw Peter. Acts chapter 12. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Acts chapter 21. When our time there came to an end, this is what Luke writes, they all with wives and children came with us outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Acts 28, their father's friend lay sick with fever and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, he healed him. Prayer comes first. To appoint new leaders to heal the sick when a friend's in prison, when they're stuck in prison, when leaving friends behind, whenever and for whatever reason, prayer comes first. Now, businesses sometimes talk about uh, trying to find a USP, a unique selling point that's going to make them stand out from the competition. For Christians, what makes us different isn't that we're better or more moral. In fact, it's the opposite if you read the Bible. The sick are in this room. Those who need help are in this room. What makes the church different is that we can do more than just hope for the best. We can do more than work our fingers to the bone and to try to get results. We can do more than wish someone well. We can do more than meditate and reflect on something. We can do more than strategize. We can do more than those things, not less than those things. None of those things are bad. Many of those things are good. They need to be done. But as Christians, we can do more. We can pray. The German monk, Martin Luther, he said, just as it's the job of cobblers to make shoes, so it's the job of Christians to pray. In fact, In the Bible, there's very little offered uh, by way of a job description for anyone involved in pastoral ministry or leadership within the church. Very little offered. If you have ever wanted to, I don't know, if someone says, can you lead the cell group or can you lead worship or can you lead a church or can you, I don't know, whatever you do, be a leader as a Christian in the marketplace. Something we turn to the Bible and say, great, what's my job description? Surely they would have written down a job description for for pastors, for preachers. You read it. 
you know, I don't know, everybody in the church has an idea of what the people, this person, me, I guess, should do. Everyone's got expectations of how I should behave. You should visit them and you should go there and you should never do this and you should always do that. And you should, if you could, could you dress a bit smarter, please? Um, the trainers put me off a bit. Well, this is before God, you should be reverent. Everybody has expectations on how people in the church ought to behave, how their leaders ought to behave. Flip-flops, really? Why are we doing this? But in the New Testament, there's very little offered besides this. They've got to have a good character and uh, show hospitality, but they've got to pray. Okay, imagine that. A church of people who said, well, can I speak to the pastor? No, he's praying. She's praying. Can we do this? No, they're praying. And Mark's gospel is an action-packed gospel. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. If you've never read a Gospel, it takes about an hour. If you're a slow reader or medium-paced reader, let's be honest, no one, very rarely do you meet someone who says they're a fast reader. Everyone's like, I'm a slow reader. I'm a terrible human being. <laughs> so if you're a terrible human being like me and you're a slow reader, Mark's Gospel takes about an hour. It's action-packed. He doesn't waste words. And so when Mark repeats something, it's obviously quite important. Listen to what he says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark. Yes, Mark, we know that in the very early of the morning, it's dark. We sometimes call that nighttime. Um, he may be writing to students. <laughs> like, in the morning, before midday, it's dark. I know, I was, I've been away this week with a group of students, um, part of a gap year that I, I, I helped lead. And um, it was, a, it was a, a moment of revelation where I realized how old I am. Uh, I'm 35, which is not very old compared to some, I know. But the students on my course are 18, 19. And um, they come alive at 11 o'clock at night. And we were playing a game, having some wholesome Christian fun. Um, and the game finished at half 10. So it was already an hour past my bedtime because I'm a pastor. And so I, I went to bed thinking it's half 10. It's reasonable, right? I couldn't sleep. Because at half eleven, someone decided, let's go to McDonald's. And at one o'clock in the morning, someone's blow-drying their hair because they've had a shower. So I said, what are you doing? And so I, in the morning, I, I, I called the students together and I said, John Stott, who's a, an old, a Bible teacher, if you know him, John Stott said that the secret of the Christian life is knowing how many hours sleep you need and getting it. I said to them, I know how many hours sleep I need, but I didn't get it. <laughs> And so I came home from rather than staying away all week, I came home and spent time at home with the family. And the kids wake up ridiculously early, so I have to choose. But anyway, Jesus, back to the story. <laughs> while it, very early in the morning while it was still dark. Is Mark telling you that you must get up very early in the morning while it's still dark? No, he's not telling you to do anything. He's just telling you what Jesus did. He's telling you how highly Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, rated prayer. He's making the point subtly and maybe in the subtext that all of Jesus's power, all of Jesus's activity comes out of this, that he understood the primacy of prayer. He understood that prayer comes first. Let's talk about mission and the role that prayer plays in mission. See, if prayer comes first, it's probably fair to say that mission, activity, comes next. You see, God is a God of mission and of activity. The world is broken and there's much chaos in the world. And it's desperately in need of God. But God is both patient and active. He's patient because he gives people time. 
And he's active because he's deliberately out pursuing us. You see, all of us everywhere, we are destined to reap the rewards of the life that we live. And since we're, we're, and since we're born and live largely in opposition to God, disregarding him, we are destined to reap the rewards or penalty that comes from that. After death comes judgment. This side of death we can choose, but beyond the void, there's no changing your mind. And God knows this much more than we do. God knows this. What does he do about that? He acts, and he's always been acting, always been determined to rescue people from themselves. Several months ago, my kids were playing this game at the top of the stairs. It was quite a rough and tumbly type game, right at the top of the stairs. Uh, They were wrestling and fighting and tripping each other up as as they do. And so I said to them, stop doing that, because if you do that, you will fall down the stairs and die. I didn't add the and die bit, but uh, I should have done to terrify them. Stop doing that, you'll hurt yourself, my little cherubs. Um, But they didn't listen to dad. They just carried on. And so, like a good father, I left them to their own devices. (laughs) No, I didn't. I stood there and I hovered and I watched. I thought, fine, this is, I know where this is going. And so, sure enough, one of them tripped the other and he was about to fall and I grabbed him. I said, see, that's what happens. God has said the same to the human race. Trust me, love me, live for me, and it'll go well. And we said, no, we'll do it our own way. And he says, you do it your own way and the penalty of that is death and judgment. And we said, I'm still going to do it our own way. And God knows that. So rather than just giving us up entirely, he stood back, waits to now grab people, to rescue people from the void before they fall. He loves humanity. He wants to rescue it, it being you. He loves you. Now often in my praying and in our prayer meetings, we, um, we pray for people who don't know God. We pray, don't we, for mission. We pray that people would come to know God personally for themselves, that God would open their eyes to see him. It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, I looked this week in the New Testament. There's no equivalent prayer. Nowhere can you find people praying for those who don't know God that they would come to know God. It's just not there. Instead, the prayer is made for the Christians that they would have guts, that they would have courage and boldness to go and share the message that Jesus has given them, that they would go and make the disciples. That's not to say you shouldn't pray for the non-Christians, for those who don't know God. Because God's passionate about them. But this is interesting to note. Prayer and mission are like breathing in and out. You see, if all you do is pray, you breathe in. If all you you do is pray, you breathe in and get puffed, puffed up and proud. If all we do is sing songs, we feel lovely. It becomes about us. But if all you do is breathe out, then you run out of breath. You run out of strength. We need to breathe in and breathe out. We need to pray for the world that God's called us to love. We need to pray for another, but we need to also be out. Two men went walking in the woods one day to go and chop wood for a day. Um, One man set out at 8 a.m., finished at 6 p.m., and all day, no breaks, he just chopped wood and sawed it in half. Chopped wood, sawed it in half. The next man came along. He also worked from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. chopping wood and sawing wood. Except this man, every two hours, he stopped. And then he started again. He had a half-hour break, and then he started again. Two hours on, half-hour off. Two hours on, half-hour off. At the end of the day, which of the two men had cut the most wood? 
Which one? You only think one rest. The second one, the one who rested. Why? Because he used his break to sharpen his saw. Prayer <laughs> matters. Prayer matters because when we pray, we sharpen our saw. We can't just chop logs and run courses and put on events. Let's get to the text. See, after Peter finds Jesus, he says to him, you know, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go to the next town, for that's why I came. That's why I came. After praying, or perhaps whilst praying, Jesus is freshly reminded of the reason he's here. For mission, for activity. Jesus was sent by his Father with a purpose and a plan, with a clear calling on his life. The word the Bible uses for the word sent is the word apostle. Jesus was apostled, he was sent into the world. He is our great apostle, the sent one who's come to us. And then what does he do? He tells his disciples that they should ask for more people to be sent, to be apostled into the world. In in Matthew chapter 9, this is what he does. Standing before a great crowd with their great needs, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and so pray for the harvest, pray that the crops would get, gather themselves. No, pray that the Father would send more workers out into the harvest. Pray that people would see the need and they would be sent to gather it. And after Jesus' resurrection, he then gathers his 12 and he sends them out. And they go from being called disciples to being called apostles because they've been commissioned, they've been apostled, they've been sent into the world. The church is a sent people. It is an apostolic people. That's what the word means. Wherever you go, whatever you do, however you do it, you are sent by God. You might think, I don't really know much about Christianity. I don't know much beyond Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And we don't even sing that, so I don't know how you know that. So well done. But I think I don't really know much beyond that. I don't even know. I don't know about dinosaurs and evolution. I wouldn't know what to say if they asked me about this or about that. The good news is, he's not asking you to. I love the story of Nicky Cruz. Nicky Cruz was a villainous gang leader in in New York uh, several decades ago. But David Wilkerson, a white, middle-class, middle-aged, prim and proper preacher, just rocked up in the gangs and started telling them, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, Nicky. Jesus loves you. Though filled with rage initially, Nicky eventually met Jesus for himself. The gangs were dissolved, um, and Nicky went on to tell millions of other people the same thing about Jesus. Jesus loves you. He's after you. He's come to call you. Now, because we live in a country that is post-Christian, it feels about Christianity rather like a divorcee feels about marriage. Been there, done that, not going back. And so it requires that the church has a lot more skill and tact, wisdom, perhaps, in how we love people and reach out to people. But what's needed isn't that we keep praying for the harvest to gather itself or that we keep praying that the need will suddenly sort itself out. What's needed, and what you see in Jesus and in the rest of the New Testament, is the need for Christians to join their apostle as those who've been apostled, sent into the world. In that sense, mission isn't part of the church, isn't something, isn't part of the church. It's not a course that we run. We need to do something that's a bit more missional. We need to run an alpha course. Mission is the way in which everything that gets done ought to get done. 
To quote an old bishop, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. We teach as those who are sent into the world for the sake of the world. We care for one another and encourage one another as those who've been sent into the world for the world. We prophesy and hear from God. We wait on God as those who've been sent into the world. Every gift that's given to the church, and there are as many gifts as there are people here, every gift that's given is given to strengthen the body for the mission that it's called to. The mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The mission of trying to gather the harvest in, to go and find the lost sheep and to search everywhere for those who are calling out to God. And there are those who are calling out to God. There are those who are desperately interested in God, but no one has told them about him. Let me end with a couple of stories. I'll tell you about a a girl named Neve that I met recently. She lives in Worthing. She's 21 and she's just enrolled on a year to volunteer in her church full-time. She has a lot to work through. But that's, but, but that, she's got a lot to work through, but that's not surprising given everything that she's been through. She grew up in a nice home, uh, but a militantly atheistic home that had nothing to do with God. As a teenager, she got into various trouble. Um, she got a boyfriend, and with that boyfriend, they started dabbling in drugs. And on one occasion, they hired a cottage in the middle of nowhere. They took some LSD together that went badly wrong, and he ended up trying to murder her. He fled. She was left, she said, in, on the floor, bleeding out with no mobile phone signal and no ambulance around to help her. Eventually, she managed to get help somehow. I think she walked somewhere, staggered somewhere and called an ambulance. Broke up with the boyfriend, carried on. A while later, she met a Christian. She got, became friends with this Christian. She found out he was a Christian and wasn't very happy about it. And he, they discussed about God and eventually he said, listen, all you've got to do is ask God to reveal himself to you and he will. I can't convince you. And she said, fine, I'll give God three attempts. She said, I'll pray three prayers. And she said, one day I was sat on the field at college and I said to God, dear God, you don't exist, but if you do exist, please reveal yourself to me. You haven't revealed yourself to me, there's no God. The next day she said she was driving in her car, hands on her steering wheel, stopped at traffic lights and said, okay, God, this is number two. Dear God, you don't exist, but if you do exist, reveal yourself to me. Oh, you haven't, there's no God. And the next day she was at work, or a while later she was at work, it worked in a florist in her town. She was sat there and she thought, oh, I might as well pray my third prayer. And then that's it. I can say I've tried that and it's rubbish. And so she sat there and she said, dear God, you don't exist, but if you do exist, please reveal yourself to me. Amen. Oh, you haven't revealed yourself to me. You don't exist. She said about 30 seconds later, an old lady walked into the shop and um, she walked up to the counter. She opened her handbag and took out a Bible. And she said, this lady was shaking. You could tell she was terrified. She opened her Bible, read something from the book of Proverbs, and said to her, you've just called out to God, and he's mapping out a plan for your life. Closed the Bible and walked out. (laughs) And Neve sat there and just went, what the heck? (laughs) That doesn't happen. And so she was really shaken, as you can imagine. She phoned up her Christian friend. She said, you never guess what's just happened, told him the story. And he went, that sounds like something God would do. She was like, are you kidding me? That's why we pray for the church, that we would have boldness to declare the gospel. This, she said this lady was terrified. But she, and she said it's just bizarre to her that she has no idea, this lady, the level of impact that she made on her life. She walked away and never will know. But because someone was praying for this little old lady, she had the courage enough to walk up to a, a scary-looking, militantly atheistic, 
19-year-old at the time. And as I said, now she's volunteering full-time for the church for the year. That's what God does. And although, if we're honest, at times it feels like he doesn't do that sort of thing as much as we'd like him to do. We feel like God is very slow in making good on some of his promises. Paul writes in the letter to the Galatians, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest. You might not reap it. Your kids might, or their kids might, but you will. Many people think about mission, evangelism, sharing the gospel is a bit like trying to sell a new product or trying to um, induce someone into a new workplace. We give them the ropes. This is what you believe. This is the gospel. This is the tract. Here we go. Um, four points. God loves you. You've sinned. You need to make it. Jesus died. You need to make a decision. Off we go. That's the gospel. We've sold the product. And for a lot of people, that's why evangelism and mission just feels so stale and corporate and scary. No one wants to be a door-to-door salesman. Actually, a more biblical picture of what mission is like is that it's like, a, it's like that of the new birth or new life. It, it takes a while for life to come. There's a gestation period before anything happens. You're not sure anything is going on. Elephants gestate for nearly two years before they give birth. The longest animal on the planet, their gestation period. Those of you who have had kids are grateful that it doesn't take near to close to two years before you can have a baby. But in the Christian life, bringing out new life, helping someone find new life in Christ, we ought not to be surprised that there's a, sometimes a very long gestation period. As someone hears the message, rejects it, thinks about it, reflects on it, ponders on it as they sleep, as they go to bed each night, outwardly nothing's changed. Inwardly, God's at work. We love, we share, we befriend, we allow people to get close enough to see our lives and to see how the message of Jesus cashes out in our lives and then we pray and we look carefully for the signs that full term has been reached. And then we become midwives. And we have to ask Alison and um, Michelle to help us to know how to do this. They're midwives, like actual midwives, in case you're wondering. Um, The truth is that more people are genuinely interested in coming to know God than we realize. The problem is that we've often become quite awkward and nervous whenever someone dares raise the subject with us. We clam up, we tense up, we think about dinosaurs. (laughs) We think about what we don't know. We've become paranoid that they will hate us or they do hate us. We act and think like a persecuted and marginalized minority. And sometimes what's needed is just to relax, to pray and to wait. Let me finish with this. This is a letter that uh, a man named James White wrote from a non-Christian. Don't worry about inviting me to church this weekend, really, because I've been thinking about it. I know we're friends and I know that you go to church, but I know talking about your faith makes you uncomfortable. At least that's the sense I get. We talk about a lot of other stuff, but whenever church or God comes up, you get, I don't know, tense. I've never understood why. It doesn't weird me out as much as it does you, but I'm happy to relieve you of what obviously is something that's making you feel awkward. Besides, what would I be missing? It's not like I'm an atheist. I'm not. I believe in God. I'm spiritual. I want to do better. I'd like to understand the Bible. I'd like to be a better parent, have a closer marriage, maybe even volunteer for something that would help others. But the last time I went to church, that wasn't exactly what was offered. 
Besides, we both know that I'm not exactly a poster child for Christianity. I've got baggage. I've got questions. I don't think church is exactly the kind of place for someone like me. And I don't want to have to dress up. I don't want to be hit on for money. I don't like organ music. And on top of all that, I don't really believe in hell. So I'm not even that worried what happens after I die. I'm sure that whatever life there is after death, it will turn out just fine. As far as my kids go, I think I want to just give them the freedom to choose whatever religion they want, if any religion at all. Church was boring for me when I had it offered to me as a kid, so the last thing I want to do is drag them to one each week. It turned me off church, and I'm sure it would do just the same for them. So it's probably better that I just don't go at all. So don't worry about trying to invite me to church. It makes you awkward. It doesn't have anything to offer my life. I can't exactly come as I am. I like wearing shorts. I give money to charity. I listen to Coldplay. Hell is a kind of joke these days, and my kids won't like it, right? But if, by chance, you think I have this all wrong, then for God's sake, invite me. Let's pray.